Check it out, check it out, check it out, check it. Sending love and light to all beings in the cosmos. What's up, Spark of Blue, and you're tuned in to Path and Present. This week, we have Michael Perez, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of Washington, my alma mater in Seattle, Washington. It's a dope school. And his research interests include migration and displacement, ethnicity and nationalism, memory, violence, human rights, Muslim societies, and Islam. He is a Cuban-American, and he has a really interesting journey as well. He was in the Nation of Islam, and he uh, has a, he's from Miami, if I'm not, uh, if my memory is not failing me. But he's now, of course, in Seattle, Washington, and someone I've met multiple times, really sweet, um, really beautiful brother. And so we talked about all all type of stuff that relates to his areas of interest. So I'm going to let you guys listen. Um, Before that, as I said I would in a previous uh, podcast introduction, I wanted to just say thank you to everybody for listening. And I wanted to give a, I'm going to read the top 20 countries as far as the most listeners coming in. Uh, now that we've been doing this podcast for, I mean, what is it, a year and a half? Um, it's kind of cool to check it out. So the number one is the United States and then the United Kingdom, number three, Canada, number four, Australia. Okay, so we got the all Western countries. And then fifth is the UAE. Sorry about that. Should have put that on silent. Fifth is the UAE. Sixth, Turkey. Seventh, Indonesia. Eighth, Germany. Nine, Saudi Arabia. Ten, Egypt. Eleven, Sweden. Twelve, Malaysia. Thirteen, Singapore. Fourteen, Pakistan. Fifteen, India. Sixteen, France. Seventeen, Netherlands. 18, South Africa, 19, Spain, and 20, Japan. (laughs) So that's just the top 20. They list like the whole top 50, but I'm not going to go through those. So if you're listening from a country that uh, that's not in the top 20, you got to let your folks know so you can get in the top 20. (laughs) But uh, it's a beautiful thing to see this spreading and to see people tuning in from all over the world. Um, Yeah. So please continue to support by word of mouth. That's the number one thing. Just tell your folks, tell your people. Again, if there's anybody that you'd like on the podcast, any topics that you'd like discuss, or any thoughts or comments or reflections or feedback at all, uh, send me an email to connect at barcodeblue.com, and I'll try to get back to you. Um, and I'd love to hear feedback. Um, and then, of course, you can support on Patreon with, this, with an amount that is easy for you monthly, and it's just automatic deduction. Uh, $1 is an awesome amount, uh, and any more than that is a bonus. So, yeah, that's patreon.com slash path and present to see our page. You can check it out. Um, I think there's certain, like, uh, rewards if you give a certain amount, like T-shirts, uh, I think like $100, and I write a, a poem about 
um, a topic of your choosing. And there was a brother who was given 100, and he asked that I write a poem for his mother. So I wrote a poem about his mother, whose name is Sabira, which means, you know, patient, patience. So I wrote a poem called A Station Called Patience. And, uh, yeah, I really like it. He really liked it, too, and he said his mother liked it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think it's going to go in my next book of poetry as well. So it's called A Station Called Patience. Maybe I'll read it one of these uh, podcasts. But, anyway, um, this podcast is with Michael Perez, and uh, I hope you enjoy. One love. You just came back from Jordan. What was that trip about? So that trip was, <clears throat> first I started on, I had a study abroad that I was doing, continuing for the second year. And my connection to Jordan goes all the way back to 2003, actually, where the, was, which was the first time I went to the occupied Palestinian territories, and I wanted to do my research there as an anthropologist. And so I went in 03, and I went with um, an organization called the Michigan Peace Team, which did, like, nonviolence organizing in the occupied territories. And, I mean, I didn't, like, that's a whole other sort of discussion what happened there. But I left, and then I went back in 2004 to continue my research. And the Israelis held me for 17 hours and then forced me to leave the country. They didn't let me in. Mm. Um, Where so did they hold you? They held me at Tel Aviv Airport. Mm -hmm. um, I've been held there too. Oh yeah, not for seventeen hours, but for they a few hours. They put me in a cell with a guy from Kazakhstan who was lovely. We could not communicate a word to one another, but fortunately for him, I wasn't crazy, and for me, he wasn't crazy. So we had a, you know, we just sat there and watched Israeli television and hung out with no verbal communication. Um, so then I had to go back to the states, and when I went back to the states, then I had, you know, I wasn't sure that I could actually ever do my research in Palestine, which is where I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that's how I came to Jordan in 2005 was like, well, I can't risk getting funded and then not being able to access my field site. So um, <clears throat> what's the, the next place I could do research? And I had a lot of friends in Michigan who were Arab, Palestinian, and they had a lot of connections in Jordan. And so it seemed like that was a logical place to go. Plus, Jordan had sort of been underrepresented in studies and people writing about it. To some extent, it still is. It's Jordan's this kind of place where it seems like it's always the backdrop for somebody else's story. I'm a little guilty of that because I was looking at the Palestinians, but the Palestinians are kind of our Jordan's story at this point, I would say. But like right. typically Jordan is like just backdrop um, for the Syrian refugees or for Iraqi refugees, but people, yeah. Jordan itself was sort of neglected. So I thought, well, let me, let me go there. And, and that's in 2005, I went to Arabic. That's actually where I met, um, the Sheikh Nuh community. And then um, I went back in all of 06 and all of 07 with my wife and did my dissertation field work there. And we also worked for Islamica magazine. That's how we got connected to that community. Was The, the magazine was based there mm -hmm. um, with Suhail Huda and some of the folks of the magazine. So what were some of the questions that you were asking in your in your field work and in your research about the Palestinian refugees? So the first time I was doing my research there, I was interested in how, what Palestinianness means after, you know, I mean, we have different generations, so I can't pin it on 48, but 48, 67, or those who were born in Jordan 
and who are citizens of Jordan. I wanted to know what are those, what is the meaning of Palestine? What is the meaning of Palestinianness? When do people, where does the consciousness of being Palestinian come from? What experiences, what stories, what, what knowledge, etc. So I was really focused on identity and, or the way people identify. And then the interesting thing was that the year I got there, right after I got there, Hamas won the elections. And that was, that had a big impact. So a lot of Palestinians in the camps were really um, pro-Hamas because they saw that as like an opportunity to, there was an Islamic element that they were putting forth, but they were also, I think, optimistic that Hamas could change the dynamic a bit and actually help move things forward because these people feel very forgotten and neglected. But this time I was working at a specific camp. These are Palestinians who in six, they were in 48, they were displaced to Gaza. And then in 67 were displaced to Jordan. And because they came in 67 from Gaza, they never got citizenship. Mm. So they've been stateless for 50 years and all Palestinians are stateless because there's no Palestinian state. But in Jordan, most Palestinians have citizenship from Jordan, and these people do not, and they haven't for 50 years. Yeah, and they don't, the Palestinians there that have been there for 50 years, born or raised there, they don't consider themselves Jordanian, and the Jordanians don't consider them Jordanian either. Is that true, or is that changing? It's complicated, you know. Um, it is complicated. I mean, I've seen instances in which Plenty of Palestinians identify as Palestinian, but also see Jordan as their home because they don't know Palestine and they accept through maybe stories of the older generation or whatever. <clears throat> and I've seen, I mean, I remember that one moment was I was in the camp and they were doing like these English classes with the kids. And one of the first statements they teach these kids is, where are you from? They, they have to learn that and they learn that in English. And if you walk into a camp, all the kids will go, what's your name? Where are you from? Like, this is the two <laughs> standard questions. And so the teacher's like, where are you from to teach them English? <clears throat> and the kids say Palestine. But this one girl said Gaza camp, which is the camp she lives in. Yeah. And the teacher was like, no, you're from Palestine. And so there are people mm -hmm. who put an importance on the identification of Palestinian. But a lot of Palestinians see themselves as Palestinian Jordanian is the way to put it. I mean, it's the only country they know. It's... It's the only place that they probably they think they'll probably ever be. They mean they don't think they're going to get a chance to go back to Palestine, although they sh they would love it. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's enough national politics that says that Palestinians belong elsewhere, and Jordanians feel sort of threatened by the demographics. Right. And so they don't have citizenship. They're not citizens. Palestinians are the majority. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because in '48, when they went to Jordan, Jordan annexed. Central Palestine, which is what we call today the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And when it did that, it made them all citizens because it took the territory in, and it planned on keeping it, right? But then 67 happens and the Israelis occupy it and the PLO emerges and then Jordan lets it go. And when Jordan let it go, actually, it took all the citizenship away from those Palestinians that lived in the West Bank. It denationalized them. Mm -hmm. So, but, but those who live in what we call the East Bank um, of Jordan the vast majority are citizens of Jordan. So they, for all purposes, have equal citizenship rights, although there's still various realms of discrimination that take place. So when, when I, like, because I haven't been in one of these refugee camps, but when I think of a refugee camp, I think of like a tent city or something like that. But when you say it's 50 years old, 
I mean, it has to have some more structure than that. So what is what is a refugee camp like physically? It's like an urban slum. You, in many cases, they are worked right into the city. So you don't, you wouldn't know that you're in a camp until you kind of go into it. And then you see the architecture and you see that the structures are different. So, um, and they vary. You have class differences within the camp. So there are people who have nicer homes for camp. And there are those who live in really rugged conditions of the camp, really slummy in a way. So like the camp I was at, that's the Gaza camp where these people are stateless. You know, the homes are concrete, but the majority of homes have zinc roofs. So it's just a sheet of zinc on top held down by bricks and debris. So if you can imagine in the heat in the summer, there's no insulation. It's just a concrete wall. That's all you have. It's really hot. And in the winter, it's freezing because freezing. I mean, as well because the zinco roof doesn't provide any real seal. That's yeah, I can't imagine. Like I was in Jordan in the winter, and I had a whatever relatively nice apartment for there, and that's probably the coldest I've ever been. Like it's cold; it's way colder inside than outside. It is, and you know, no central heating, so I can only imagine what what they experience. Yeah, the winter. People think of the Middle East. Oh, yeah, it's hot, right? It's hot, it's a desert. No, it rains and it's freezing in Jordan. It snows. Um, but, yeah, the, so the camps are more like, I would call them urban slums in that sense um, because they're, the infrastructure is still kind of shoddy. There's a sense of permanence and temporality overlapping one another. This is one of the things we wanted to do with this photo essay in the camp is that we know what people think when they think of a refugee camp. We wanted to challenge that a bit to show what happens when refugees become long-term displacements and, you know, 50 years or 60 years of being refugees. Things change and people make life ordinary, but there's always something slightly off. And that camp sort of, even in its material structures, it's that permanence and temporality kind of overlapping. They're non-citizens, but they've been there for 50 years. They live in permanent-looking structures, but there are impermanent features to these structures. So we wanted to try to... I, that was one of the things I was interested in, is how people make life possible and ordinary in conditions of, you know, relative insecurity and poverty. Yeah. I mean, do you follow the, the political situation in Israel-Palestine and, and the developments and what's going on? I try to. I, you know, there's a bit of fatigue that sets in and I get kind mm -hmm. of focused on the topic I'm working on. And so I kind of, I get tunnel vision a bit and sort of focus then just on refugees and what the situation is for them. But yeah, I try to keep up with it. I mean, and I thought, you know, we, I work for the Islamic Monthly at times and I interviewed for the magazine Reza Aslan mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And he's the one who said to me, he said during that interview that he thought Obama would use the Security Council to finally push Israel at the end of his uh, term. And I, I, didn't, I didn't disbelieve him or believe him. I just right. been sure, you know, when I saw what Obama and I read Kerry's speech, I mean, it was 19 pages when I printed it. Wow. I was um, as impressed as I could be for an outgoing U.S. president on Israel. I was, right. So that was a really powerful moment, actually. Yeah, just an, you know, an abstinence vote is <laughs> so much. For a U.S. president. Right? Yes, it is. Does it mean, do you think that means something as far as um, the global community shifting 
on Israel-Palestine? Or do you think with Trump coming in that it's not going to mean much? I think it means a lot and it means little. Um, it means a lot because you're right. It does. I think it is part of a, of a shift. And I think what explains Obama's quiet, his, his, how quiet he was prior to this, although he wasn't fully quiet, but he was pretty quiet, especially like during Gaza wars and stuff, mm-hmm. was that he was working the Iran deal. And I think he prioritized that. Um, but I think he knows there was an attempt to sort of put an international conference together in France. Governments are trying to, some governments and, and people, as they've always been, are working to really move things. And I think it's, it's, it's shifting dramatically. And I think that Obama not only tapped into that, but did a bold move precisely because what's not going to change, in a sense, is that when Trump comes in, everything looks like he's going to give Israel you know, all the, all the space that, yeah, to do what it wants to do. And I think it was a very clever move for him to set a final a precedent that, that Trump will have to break with mm. coming in the presidency. Right. Um, you know, is Netanyahu going to change this? No, I think, I think everybody, I think everybody knows that this, the two state solution is over, but it, it needed to be, claimed one last time and maybe that's what Obama did. So I, I don't know how it's not moving towards it. I think it's already a part of apartheid state, but I think where it's yeah. going to be recognized as such is it's the rest where it's moving. Yeah. And I mean, you work in a lot, a lot of around questions of identity and just this idea of the Israeli state is, has this real tension between it's a democratic and Jewish state, right? And that, I think for, for as an American, it's hard to negotiate that. And I just think in reality, it's hard to negotiate that on paper because, you know, it's very similar to be like, America is a white and democratic state. Like, what does that say for your non-white people that live there? Like, it's not all good. It's kind of rough. And... You know, I think it's 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 a sensitive issue because of the history and what's happened to the Jewish people and then the, the state of Israel kind of coming out of that, you know, to a large extent. So, and of course, the, the presentation is like, attack anyone as anti-Semitic who in any way questions, like, how are you really treating your non-Jewish citizens? You know what I mean? But... Yeah, it seems like um, there's there's a certain... It's hard for me to know. Like, I always feel like, oh, people are becoming more a bit more enlightened and they're realizing, like, it's not fair. Like, it's not fair to have a state be based on full rights for one people and then another type of people being second-class citizens. And it seems like globally people are waking up to that. And it seems like the... Mm -hmm. BDS is, is, is pretty successful. But then on the other hand, I, I had this feeling that like Americans are becoming more open and more loving and more compassionate and more multicultural. And then Trump gets elected. So I'm like, man, I don't know at all what's going on. I feel like I live in a strange bubble that doesn't necessarily represent the broader sphere. So Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think where the change is taking place is in the Jewish American community. 
And that's where it's going to matter, I think, more, more than whether it changes within the American public at large. Um, I mean, Peter Beinart, I think his name is, he's a writer, and he's, I mean, I would consider him a liberal, liberal Zionist. Um, I mean, he definitely he believes in the Zionist view that this land belongs to Jews, and he's a two-state solution guy. But after Obama's, the move in the, in the UN, he was on TV, and, you know, he invoked the word apartheid. And he didn't say it was. He said it's going to move that way if something doesn't happen. And even he was, his whole approach was so different. And um, I just think that a lot of Jewish Americans are struggling with reconciling their affection and, and commitment to Israel and what is what that Israel is that they're committed to. And the where, you know, and I, so I think that's where the real change is going to take place. Unfortunately, though, you know, at the top level, institutionally, those influences that work for the state of Israel's um, sort of expansionist interest are still there. And that's not going to take change quickly. You know, the, those who lobby for Israel and want to protect Israel from any criticism as it while it pursues its Zionist dream, you know, that they're still there and they're, you know, the ADL and other organizations that, but, but at the grassroots level, I think I'm optimistic that Jewish Americans are, are really growing frustrated with this situation. And that's where, the, that's where it's going to matter more than anywhere else. If in my assessment, yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think that while Netanyahu's terrible, like, we always have to remember this was a settler colonial state. It was constructed under British colonial occupation. And, the, you know, there was debates about what Zionism was going to mean. And the ones that won were the ones that said it was going to be a state realized exclusively for Jews. Um, there were other perspectives. They didn't win. So I think this, what's interesting is that I hope it's forcing people to think about the origin story as well, because I don't think Netanyahu is doing anything that's at, out of sync with, say, what was being done, set in motion in 48. You know, the destruction of homes took place, 480 villages were raised after 1948 and more after 1967, the denial of return, and then the settlement movement starts to boom in, you know, after the 60s. But the settlements, settlements were already underway before 48. Sure. So Netanyahu looks terrible, and he is, but he's the, he's the product of something that goes much further into history that I think a lot of people are starting to come to terms with. Hopefully it's not too little too late. There's been a lot of people talking about the fact that just Israeli society in general is, is shifting to the right pretty extremely. And you, you actually see this phenomenon actually happening a lot of places in the world right now. I mean, in Europe and stuff like that. Um, and it seems to me on the surface of things that whenever there's um, like instability or, or just a narrative of fear, you know, whether it's real or perceived, people often gravitate towards figures who are kind of strong men who promise safety. Like, I'll protect you, and I'm going to get the bad guys. I'm going to get the boogeyman. Don't worry. And it's interesting how willing people are to give up their kind of freedoms, necessarily, for protection. Um, and, of course, that plays in the, the Trump phenomenon. It's like the 
kind of global neoliberal order having a lot of breakdowns in many places and the middle class dissipating in so many places manifests itself in this rebellion against the kind of neoliberal order, both with Trump and then Brexit and then these rising right-wing parties in Europe as well. So I don't know if that, it's also that, like just the, the kind of tension growing up in Israel with the tension and the fear of violence that just kind of plays into these right-wing figures or, or what? Well, and it could be, I think, on some level, the failure of the left, both in Israel and in the United States. Mm. I mean, the so-called left wing of, of the doves of Israel were expanding settlements and <clears throat> had policies that were not um, actually achieving the goals that they were setting forth. They did not present a radical alternative to the right, um, and they had their time. And, and I think in the United States, maybe I don't, I, you know, maybe the left hasn't done enough to actually, you know, my thinking at this point is that I, while I always think protest and working outside of the system is an essential, you know, thing to do, how many of us are entering those systems to try to change them? How many of us want to be polit- political and, and, and not just push from the outside? Um, and so, you know, I think it, there's a failure on the left's part to be able to really mobilize politically you know, and, and not in an activist way exclusively, but mobilize politically and start to build, you know, say, a different Democratic Party. I mean, I think Bernie mm-hmm. spoke to that, that there's a hunger for something far, further on the left. But why is this, you know, 70-plus-year-old guy from Vermont having to do that? Right. You know, we need younger, more people entering these institutions of power um, and, and always maintain the pressure on the outside as well. And I, I think that that's kind of a failure on our part that we haven't, we're not, th- we're not thinking, we're not thinking about how to approach this in the most productive ways. Mm. And we have to bite the bullet and be like, you know, Hoshana Shawant and enter the city council. And yes, you're an institution of power and you're going to face constraints, but um, enough of, you know, you need people to do that. You need to go in and push it a little further. We can't stay on the outside and protest all the time. Mm. Um, and I don't mean to belittle any of the activism that's going on, but I just think that we have to enter politics. Um, we, if we wanted the Democratic Party to serve us, we have to enter it. We can't beg Hillary Clinton, or right. you know, um, and these kinds of figures to do yeah. the work for us. And you're seeing, like, in the po- in Hillary's failure, you're seeing this real split exposed, this fissure exposed in the Democratic Party. You have the kind of like Sanders, Ellison, Elizabeth Warren, and then you have the more establishment, yeah. centrist, corporate. I mean, in, in many ways, you have kind of like Occupy Wall Street and Wall Street, which is, it's so silly. Like, Hillary's coalition was so impossible because it was Occupy Wall Street and Wall Street at the same time. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just so ridiculous mm-hmm. and so absurd, in fact, and, and, and really so arrogant that you thought you could put that forth and that anyone would believe it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. But how did you, as a Cuban-American, get interested in the Middle East and, and uh, North Africa and Islam? So that comes from my experience in the Nation of Islam. The first time I heard about Palestine was when Louis Farrakhan did a, what they called the Friendship Tour. Back in the, I think it was, in, yeah, it was in the mid-90s or late-90s. And he went and visited Iraq, 
and Palestine and sat with Yasser Arafat and a bunch of other people. So until that point as a kid, and I never even heard the words Palestine, you know, that I can remember. And he, that trip, because we were all in the nation and we were all inspired in a sense because it was like he was building relationships for us as the community with people abroad. And, you know, and so, and he would then speak about the Palestinian issue at times. Um, not a lot, but he would. He would. Um, and so that was sort of the first seeds of me having heard about that. Um, but so I, 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 when I was Muslim and I was in an undergraduate, I went to Morocco to take Arabic for study abroad. And then I came back to the States and graduated. And then I was sort of thinking about what I would do. And I either wanted to go to law school or I wanted to go to anthropology. And I wasn't sure what to do. But long story short, the you know, September 11th attacks happened. And at the same time, the Intifada was already in motion. And so all of a sudden, these two things start to come together on the news. And I had been a subscriber to Harper's Magazine at that point for probably a year or two. And I read Chris Hedges' piece, A Gaza Diary, um, which was just a short diary of him being in Gaza for a little while. And when I read that, I was horrified because I couldn't believe that that injustice was happening, um, especially because there was stuff on the news that was showing, you know, Israel's the victim of terror, and yet I heard nothing, comp, you know, and remotely close to what Chris Hedges was describing was happening in Gaza. Mm-hmm. So that mood, that motivated me, and as anything, the more labor you work put into something, the more connection you get to it. So I, you know, went and got Edward Said's The Question of Palestine, and started to read. I started to work with some of the Muslim students um, at University of Miami. They were holding like these protests during that period for in defense of, of Palestine, joined them. And that all mobilized me in a sense to go, well, maybe I can use anthropology as a way to say something about what's and understand something about what's going on in, in Palestine. And that's what, that's what drove me ultimately in that direction. So, to backtrack, you mentioned the nation. Yeah. So you grew up in Miami. I did. Yeah. How? What was that? How did? How was your path to to the nation? Well, it was primarily through my brother. Who, I mean, we both listened to hip hop as kids, mm-hmm. and I think that that planted a seed that we weren't aware of at the time because we were. I mean, we're talking about the era of taped cassettes. You know, mm-hmm. we were listening to cassettes. So, you know, I saw Run DMC play. You know, back in the late 80s, we went to 1989, 1990, we were really deeply in hip-hop. And we didn't know anything about Islam, at least we didn't think we knew anything about Islam at the time. But when my brother went to community college, he was interested in hip-hop, and he met a few um, black American guys who were hip-hop artists, or aspiring, and then, but they were in the Nation of Islam. And that brought him into it. And then he, he would nag me about it. And I was... I was already, I was on a path. I mean, I was doing a lot of drugs. And, but there was a point at which my drug use was like, not just, oh, I want to get wasted. It was like, you ever read, I don't know if you ever read the books of Don Juan. That's what I was reading at the yeah, time. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it was at that time, but I was like, whoa, Carlos okay. Exactly. You know, so there was some process that was happening yeah, already. Yeah, entheogen, like, let's experiment with consciousness. Yes. Let's go so, deeper. Exactly. There was a sense for something deeper hmm. and for the first time. And that was what mattered. And so when my brother's conversations and my reaching that point started to come together is when I finally, like, he persuaded me, he said, 
he would nag me to come to the mosque once, you know, or just come to the mosque, the mosque. And I went, and it blew me away. It was a young black guy named Brother Gerald, and he was in a, we were in a strip mall mosque, you know, very humble. And he just spoke a language that, you know, I mean, I'm coming out of a Miami Cuban-American suburban family, but he spoke a language I understood, you know. He spoke about things that I'd never heard in, a, in the church or anything I'd heard in any religious context before. And that inspired me, and I went back again and back again. And then we did, like, you know, then little by little, we, they just start getting more integrated. But we had the benefit that the minister of that mosque was this, one of the sons of Elijah Muhammad, Brother Rasul Muhammad, and he was raised in Mexico. Mm. And his wife at the time was Mexican. And so he had an affinity for the Latinos who came into that mosque. He, because even though he was black and American, he was spent so much time in Mexico that when he met my brother and we had, you know, Puerto Rican, a couple of Peruvians, like then he, he, that was a part of himself that he could never, I think, act because it was, his audience was a different crowd in that mosque until the Latinos were there. So then it was holistic for him. He could, he could interact with now. He could speak Spanish and English. He could talk about the ghetto and he could talk about Latin America. And he was happy about that. And we were too, that gave us a sense of like, we belong because, Mm -hmm. you know, just coming with a racial paradigm, you're like, I don't look like that brother. How am I, how am I in the nation? Right. And so much of the nation's, you know, articulation is, is, is racial, racialized. So it's like, yeah. So, you know, that was comforting to see this light skinned guy. Who's like, I'm a Mexican American Muslim. Who's the son of Elijah Muhammad. And that worked for us. Um, and that made us feel much, much, much more home. Yeah. So you also have done work on uh, Islam in popular culture here in America? Yeah, I developed this class back in 2012. And I wanted to do something that was creative instead of just teaching like intro to Islam. I wanted to, and I, and I also, of course, I had my, I wanted for students to think critically about representation. So I thought, let me create this class. And, um, you know, I got, I put it, I, I taught it a few times and I included that portion of my background. It was like, I got to go back to brand Nubian mm-hmm. early ice cube and all this stuff and play it for the students and help them see that Islam was already within the culture of hip hop, especially at this time was prominent. And that's popular culture. That's hit Islam and Muslims making a very important part of the hip hop history musically. So it was a great opportunity for me. And then I got also to show not just how then how people represent Muslims, um, but how Muslims represent Islam and how they in artistic ways, you know, so I brought Mark Gonzalez to my class. Willow Wilson's come to my class. Um, I had Musa Saeed. He's a, you know, you know him. He's a director. He's, he, he did Valley of the Saints and he's done a couple of PBS documentaries, one about the son who inherits the butcher shop in New York, um, Muslim butcher shop. And so, you know, he gave a Skype lecture, but it was a great experience. But yeah, I thought that would be a different way of approaching teaching Islam instead of just always, you know, five pillars or whatever. I wanted to, I wanted to show the cultural life of Muslims and the ways that some people represent Muslims. Um, yeah. So you talk a lot about identity, and um, I think it's really interesting. I don't I haven't followed it that much, but you know, I came out of kind of a left 
leaning activist background making revolutionary hip hop very much influenced by the golden golden age hip hop that you were listening to and also reflecting on what does it mean to be uh you know person of european descent who you know also getting that messaging which is very afrocentric and stuff like that yeah um and that was a lot of my early exposure to islam was through that as well um but question of identity are really interesting to me. And I think now what I see with a lot of young people, there's there's so much emphasis um, on identity. And even there's questions about, you know, what people like call identity politics, even in relation to the Dem- Democratic Party, like identity versus principle and, and like Obama, like how the Democratic Party, you know, put forth a black man or put forth a woman or put forth whatever, as long as that person isn't challenging, you know, Goldman Sachs. So the way that you can put like a, a female or or a darker hued man, and that people, a lot of like liberal white people in Seattle will feel super good about like yes, I'm gonna vote for Obama. You know what I mean, like mm-hmm. that. But whether it's actually challenging or changing policies because in many ways Obama might have done things that all these people would be up in arms if George Bush did it. But if Obama does it, it's you know what I mean? They feel, we feel okay. We feel it's, you know, give him a pass or something like that. And then you're a professor and I haven't followed it that much, but you hear a lot of people talking about like the danger of PC culture and all this stuff, right? And, um, you know, this like, Outrage, people have been outraged, recreational outrage, and, ident- and, and gender, and the, the um, different levels, even like how many pronouns and what pronoun do you use in this? Like, do you, are you, do you follow all those conversations? Because I feel like there's a lot there, and there's a lot of conversations that are happening in, with the, in the young and activist circles. And then, of course, we have Black Lives Matter, we have, you know, all these things are happening. It feels like there's so much around what boils down to is what is identity and what what does identity mean? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, I think the piece, the idea of the PC culture, you hear it from people, liberals like Bill Maher, or mm-hmm. you hear it from right-wingers. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, what they really mean is they want to talk like a racist and get away with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, you know, now whether like, whether ident- the, the language of identity has, has some excesses, sure, I think so. I mean, I would go, I could start right with the Muslim community. Um, I think that there is a dangerous and flawed idea of an Islam and a West, which is the sad product of the very thing that we, many Muslims and scholars have spent a lot of time criticizing. And this and and actually feel like a lot of how they identify hinges on this distinction, whereas I think we should be working for true inclus- inclusivity, of course, acknowledging power, but always being um, but but trying to overcome these limitations because there are limitations. I mean, where am I? I'm a Cuban American of Spanish descent, Muslim convert through the nation of Islam. 
what am I? You know, where do I, where do my loyalties stand? I mean, you can't define my loyalties by virtue of some geographic origin alone and, 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 and it shouldn't. And I don't want, so we have to, we have to be very careful. I think, especially today to not essentialize ourselves. I understand that it can do important work and at times it may be necessary, but we get too comfortable essentializing. You know, I saw it in the nation of Islam. That was one of my critiques, you know, is that they wanted, they wanted to construct a very limited notion of blackness that was at odds with other black authors and other blacks, you know, intellectuals and, and cultural producers that were talking about their experiences of blackness that didn't fit into there. And so, um, you know, while on one hand I recognize that the nation was constructing a necessary essentialism in the context of black and white and racial oppression, they, they, needed to, they couldn't stop there. They stopped there when they shouldn't have. And we can't fall victim to the same thing. So we have to be very careful not to essentialize ourselves because we have overlapping loyalties and overlapping senses of um, who we are and those shifted times. And I'm not trying to throw us into some sort of postmodern, there is no identity, mm-hmm. but I just mean that we got to be cautious about how we, how, we, how we construct this and how we put ourselves forward. Because um, I think that we can, put, we can create more problems than, than actually we're trying you know, than, than solve them. And so, um, yeah, so that, that's one of the dangers I see. And I see it in, like, there was this conference I saw not too long ago that was taking place in Spain. It was, like, post-colonial Islam, et cetera, and, and the West. And I was just thinking, but wait a minute, like, it's one thing to acknowledge European power and European colonialism, but once we start constructing some sort of essentialized European and whatever, isn't that the same thing? Haven't we been resisting the clash of civilization thesis now for the last decade? And now all of a sudden there's a purely Islamic pedagogy. There's a purely Islam. No, that's not true. Muslims have always been interacting with knowledge and cultures from all over the world. And that's, what's given us our beauty. And instead we're kind of trying to like in a hyper defensive mode, we're, we're limiting ourselves and we shouldn't be afraid of that thing we call the West. We should overcome that distinction and, and, and work with something more, more rich and more diverse. Mm. Yeah. No, I feel, and I feel like a lot of this stuff is, is problematized by the fact that you know, a lot of people are speaking past each other. And for some reason, because of with social media and just with every little like controversy or every little debate, it becomes clearer and clearer that um, a lot of people aren't really trying to hear people on the other side of the conversation. Like mm-hmm. they really don't want to hear them. Um, they want, they come in with a position and they want to maintain that through, through and through. And so whatever is out of tune with that perspective, they're just going to look past it. And there's something about the internet, which like, um, I don't know if it's the, impersonalness but like it just removes the veil like people like don't read the comment section (laughs) you know it's like there's just like where did that come from like the level of just darkness and 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 real cruelty um but yeah i feel like a lot of these conversations you know and there's this recent thing with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's comments 
um, at RIS, and then, you know, his comments and then apology and then people attacking him and then people defending him and this and that. And what I felt was lost is like, if you step back and say in a traditional society, we all live in a village, right? If somebody said something which was painful or hurtful or, uh, you know, whether they misspoke or whether they really meant what they said and it hurt a, a certain segment of the population then there would the, those individuals would have the ability to say, "That's not cool." This, the X, Y, and Z, and then this person would have an ability to respond. And then there would be some like, "What did you mean by that? Did you mean what you're saying? No, or I didn't, or yes, I did." You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then there's the ability to talk that out, or checks and balances, or other people could come in, or people could, uh, you know, in some way it can be reconciled. Or maybe not. Maybe someone has to get banished from the village or whatever, but there's a way to deal with it. And I feel like now in the social media generation where communities are constituted by individuals that in many cases will never meet each other and will never occupy the same physical space, let alone live in the same village. And then someone says a word which is recorded. Someone then types this. Someone writes it. And like, I, I feel like there's this real breakdown of communication, which makes it really hard to actually constitute a community. Because I felt like, you know, the irony of the, the Sheikh Hamza thing is that when he said what he said, somebody reported he said this, and then people started forming opinions. Without the people forming opinions, even actually hearing what he said, it was all hearsay. You know what I mean? And so I just, I was like, I don't have an opinion yet because I don't know what was said. I'm just hearing people say what was said, what was said, the whole telephone game. So, yeah. Those well, are but it, Facebook is kind of like a, an awkward silence that people are constantly trying to fill. Mm. You know, it's like this, it's like this thing that in order for it to be anything, you got to talk mm. and you got to talk. And so once you're connected to it, you're just constantly filling in that space. And it's, it's not, you know, this isn't a, a sort of polemic on Facebook, but it's, it's more about the way we behave with this thing. But then we just, we, it, it needs voice constantly, constantly. And it's, that kind of medium is probably not the best for careful speculation, you know, reflection and speculation and thinking through this stuff critically. So it's just, it just becomes the next thing to talk about and, and people just constantly filling it in. And I think that that's probably... Does, I mean, people can be responsible, I'm sure, and critical and reflective with Facebook, but I think that it's, too many of us are trying to fill that awkward silence all the time. Mm-hmm. And so Sheikh Hamza Yusuf becomes something to fill that silence until the next thing comes up to fill it and just mm-hmm. keep pouring and pouring and pouring. And, um, and like you say, it's it, it, there's a difference between you and I talking here than us throwing a comment on Facebook Um it's not conducive, I think, towards the most productive ways of, of communicating with one another. Yeah. And it's clearly it's got some great potential, but I mean, I just think of it as, as people need to fill an awkward silence. Like mm. once it's there, they just got to talk. Right. And uh, that's, that's not always a good thing. <laughs> so what are you looking at now? Or what questions are you interested in? Or what um, research? I know you mentioned Islam in Latin America and... Uh, those are some longer term goals. I mean, we're thinking, like I told you, I'm talking to Ali Mian 
we've been thinking for now a year about how to really move on some discussions on gender and sexuality. Um, we're, you know, we wrote these pieces um, for that, for the blog. And, you know, I, I was using it as an opportunity to finally hear myself articulate my thoughts on the LGBTQ community in Islam, which is something that's too easily not talked about. And, and it's, you know, for, for, in some cases, I think for good reasons, I felt, I felt personally like I wasn't prepared to say, to say certain things, you know? Um, but I, you know, I used, I thought that this, I wanted an opportunity to, to start to give voice to that because when that young woman was up there that day at the, this, the, the vigil and she said, you know, I'm queer and I'm Muslim, I had to ask myself, do we have a space for that person in our mosque? What kind of a space is it? Um, do we even think that this person deserves a space? Why or why not? You know, and these are questions that are very easy to kind of get to ignore. And I think Ali and I are really thinking about these things. And we're also thinking about things like masculinity. Um, I mean, you look at you look at the violence in parts of where Muslim, you know, the world where Muslims live, and you have to, you have to see that men are very much involved in this stuff. So we need to start asking questions about the links between violence and, and manliness and these sorts of things, um, and ask ourselves what kind of what kind of ethics can Islam provide for thinking about our lives as sexual beings, which we are, and gendered beings, which we are, and all these other things. And so that's something that we were really hoping to work towards, um, and I think that. You know, he and I are a good pair because he's got a bit more of the, I think, textual historical context in his work. And I've got a bit more of the kind of diversity of ethnography and the different different ways that societies have constructed you know, gender and sexuality. And so I think bringing those together would be a nice project. So that's that's something we'd really like to work on. And then move, of course, moving towards seeing how Islam sort of emerges in, Islam, in, in Latin America and how it's indigenized and what does it mean to be a Cuban Muslim and what's influencing that, what's limiting it, which, you know, this sort of thing. So, and that's of course very personal to me because I always struggle with, with my own relation, my, my own sense of being Muslim and these other things that I identify myself as. So I'm really, I'm really fascinated to see how other Cubans are working this out um, and what I can learn from them and what maybe, you know, they can learn from, from me and others here. Yeah, I think it's it can be complicated by the fact that, um, you know, if you think about in the pre-modern world, sure, there was always power and there's, you know, but, you know, when the absence of mass communication and when Islam is spreading in a lot of places by trade, um, there's time and distance enough to develop a lot of indigenous Islams in every locality. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most beautiful things. I mean, traveling throughout the majority Muslim world, you see that in Senegal, in, in Indonesia, in Turkey, in Cairo. Um, I mean, it's a great feeling to arrive in this place and see that the mosques are built differently. Yeah. That the clothing is different, you know, and not, what would it mean if we think that all Muslims have to wear the same thing? Yeah, and you know, I, I just, I just can't. That to me seems like a poverty of the imagination. For sure, you know, we should be thinking broader terms. But I think what I was, what I was getting at is that because we live in this hyperconnected world, um, 
it feels like it can, on some levels, stifle the space that allows that. You know what I mean? Because, and then, you know, who's the most powerful? Who has the most oil money? Who has the most influence? Who can, you know, go into these quote unquote impoverished communities and build mosques and train thinkers and promote certain ideas and sideline other ideas? Um, it kind of can remove that, the power of that indigenous thing to develop you know what i mean the the local um and that's what i see has having happened in a lot of the muslim world i was blessed to go to cuba um a month ago and you know the vast majority of the muslims that i met there are cubans converts and it was so beautiful to see i mean they had a mosque that was built by saudis maybe the turks gave some i can't remember but you really get the feeling that um, it was this very indigenous Cuban Islam and that people had come to it as seekers. And there was this very like camaraderie that they were really like, because they're such a small group in this broader thing. And then Cubans in general feeling very cut off from the rest of the world. You know what I mean? There was this real sense of like communion, communality that, that you kind of almost hear about only when you're reading about like the Sahaba or something like that. So I really felt that there and it felt really powerful and really beautiful. So, um, but yeah, I would love, I mean, we definitely, inshallah, I can connect you with the people that I met there because there are some people that are trying to connect with that community there. And uh, absolutely. I think that's an important, especially as, America becomes more and more Latino. <laughs> All right, you go to the the southern states; it's already there, you know. And uh, I think this ties in with the old tr- Trump phenomenon. But somebody said that a few years ago was the f- first year that the majority of children entering first grade in American public schools are non-white, and that's never going to be reversed. Like from now on, every year, the yeah. major, a smaller percentage are going to be white. You know what I mean? So it's just part of the shifting demographic. So I think those connections, you know, between the, you know, Latinos. And- but it is worrisome that some influences might, you know, I mean, and of course I'm state laying, making clear I have stakes here, but this, mm-hmm. this, you know, my position is that there is a concern that certain countries have Islam as part of their foreign policy and are able to promote and produce an Islam that's really not conducive to the kinds of communities that we've seen other Muslims have, you know? Um, So it is worrisome, you know? And and I think that there's, unfortunately, there's a great appeal to some of the ways that this kind of, I I hate to call it Salafism because it sort of maybe perverts the word a bit. And I don't know that the word always had that meaning, but this kind of simplification of Islam, yeah. um, you know, that that really ignores the legacy of 1,400 years of, of cultural and intellectual work that Muslims have put into and practical work into building their communities, that we have this sort of way, way of thinking about Islam that is so black and white and so easily distributed. Mm-hmm. It, it is worrisome, you know. I mean, when I was in Cuba, there was a guy that one of the Cuban Muslims was telling me said he's only a Muslim because he's getting money from this embassy. And um, the idea was that 
there were some, the Irani and Turkish embassies, they, this guy said, were vying for influence over those Cubans who were becoming Muslims. You know, um, and that, that may be non-political or, or maybe, I don't know, but like those are things to worry about. Um, and I know that the Cubans that I met when I was there had very little resources in Spanish. So there's a kind of race here in the sense that, well, what if, uh, what if you know, some of the Saudi clerics start translating their work real quickly mm-hmm. into Spanish and this is what builds that community? Now, they have every right to build the community they want, but we should, they should have more options. <laughs> I would For hope, sure. You know? For um, sure. Yeah, I would, I would hate to see that kind of effect happen. I just I don't see it as productive. Well, that's what's up, man. Hopefully we can uh, go to Cuba together sometime. Inshallah. Okay, it's good talking to you, man. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Path and Present Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. People hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate, and comment um, on the iTunes page of Path and Present. Subscribing means that the podcast, will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it. And rating and commenting means that it will grow and uh come up in the iTunes rankings, which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people. And then lastly, you can support financially on Patreon. Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content. And we have a Path and Present page on Patreon. The link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash path and present and you'll find the patreon link there and yeah you can support there we're greatly appreciative of it uh i guess lastly lastly keep us in your prayers your positive thoughts and your moments of remembrance and thank you for tuning in and being part of the global path and present family one love